Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, come to the dispatch.com to check out all the free stuff, to sign up and become a paid member of the community so you can comment on everything and see everything, including Wednesday's G-File, which I was surprised by how popular it was. Um, and also, if you come to the dispatch, you can find out why the, the fifth chair ended up in France. A coveted no prize to uh, the person who knows what that's a reference to and an additional no prize to the listener who knows what a no prize is and what that's a reference to. Um, so I'm in Alaska. I'm in my hotel room now, so I hope the audio works out. I didn't bring some of the uh, noise-stifling equipment that I normally have to use for this thing, but I think it'll be okay. Um, I'm in Alaska to see uh, my wife's family, as I think I mentioned here before, um, my brother-in-law, Rudy, passed away um, not too long ago. And while the, the actual funeral was in the past, this is sort of a delayed celebration in his memory. It's the reason why it was a command performance for all members of the family. And also, we try to get up here in the summer when we can anyway. It used to be that we would come out here every August uh, for my mother-in-law's birthday, but she passed away a few years ago. And so now, um, sadly, uh, sometimes this is the excuse. This kind of thing is the excuse. But we also just like to come up here in the summer because for listeners who aren't in Alaska and who haven't been here, Alaska in the summer is truly one of the most wonderful places in the world. Um, it is my kind of summer weather. Um, except for the almost omnipresent light, um, which can really throw you off um, if you don't drink through it. There's just something really weird about waking up at 3.30 in the morning and it looking like it's, you know, after dawn. Um, it's not bright, shining light 24-7, though around the summer solstice, it's pretty damn close. Um, in fact... Last year, um, some listeners may recall, I, as I like to say, I completed my first 5K in the uh, Summer Fun Run 10K, by which I mean I stopped <laughs> five, five K in. Um, but it's, that's a really neat event. It starts around, it doesn't quite start at midnight, but it kind of ends at midnight, and um, it's still light out. And we had talked 
last year, people who remember my old assistant and the former um, sidekick on this podcast, Jack Butler, is a big marathon runner. And we thought about bringing him up here as uh, a ringer, sort of like, you know, one of those 250-pound, 20-year-old Dominican baseball players that Jack Donaghy, you know, types would substitute for um, Little League players. We thought we would bring him up here and see if he could win the whole thing. I mean, there's some serious runners up here, so it's not a foregone conclusion that Jack would 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 win it, but he would certainly finish um, near the top. And we thought we would just, you know, cover him with advertising for the various Govora liquor stores and whatnot around here. We thought it'd be funny. Still like to bring him up here at some point to do that, but we couldn't do it this year because they canceled it due to COVID. And uh, Fairbanks itself is kind of grim right now. It's never been a particularly beautiful city that I think even most uh, Fairbanksians, Fairbanksians um, would concede. It's uh, pretty industrial. My father-in-law, who was a kind of a giant of this community, um, always complained about how um, the architecture of this city was derived from the old gold rush culture. And people didn't build things really to last. Um, and, you know, the, the, it's also just all very flat because there's so much land. So people build out rather than up. And, uh, but anyway, you know, because of the pandemic and the restrictions on tourism and all of that, and the restrictions on cruise ships, um, which even though this is not a cruise port, a lot of the cruise itineraries involve, um, sort of bus trips into the interior and you see Fairbanks and all that. And with all that gone, it really is close to a ghost town downtown. And I, I, I worry for some of the businesses here. Um, but anyway, Alaska is just this great place and people, you know, it is one of my um, go-to topics for small talk, particularly with like Uber drivers and cab drivers when you talk about the weather, since I can't really do contemporary sports too well. And, um, you know, because it, it's just, it's, it's one of these places that, um, if you spend time here, it's a weird way to phrase it, but it reminds you that we live on a planet. Um, and what I mean by that is like, if, I think everybody can understand why people or lots of people used to think the earth was flat. Um, and, you know, because just intuitively where you live, you know, just the idea that it's uh, a giant ball and at the end of the horizon is the curvature of the earth is, is something you have to kind of learn um, and have explained to you rather than just come to you naturally. And we tend to, you know, where we live, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like um, people who grew up on the East coast and, or the Midwest, and then they go out to Southern California and there are no seasons. And all of a sudden these things, which are these, sort of taken for granted guideposts about the nature of reality change and it kind of, you know, it freaks you out a little bit. And if you've ever been up here in the dead of winter during a cold snap, um, you'd really see what I mean. Uh, the first time I've been, I've been dining out on my, you know, my family in Alaska for a long time, but I, and there are stories and, you know, uh, my wife has these great stories about growing up in Alaska and, people who have 
heard me talk about my father-in-law or read, you know, my, my, you know, sort of obit to him, know that he's got an even more amazing Alaska stories. But until you actually come up here in a real winter, you really can't appreciate some of it. And um, when it's 52 below, I was up here when it hit 52 below zero um, one winter. And that's, 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 that's true 52 below. It's not wind chill. It's because there's not a lot of wind here because Fairbanks is like in a bowl and we're, I don't know, someone will correct me on this, three, 400 miles south of the Arctic Circle. And um, anyway, in winter, when you get below 40 below zero and you know, just think about how cold zero is and how cold 40 degrees is, but how much warmer 40 degrees is than zero degrees and think about what 40 degrees colder than zero is, you know, it's really kind of amazing. And anyway, when you get below, when you get sustained temperatures below 40 below, um, the physics of the world that we tend to take for granted um, start to change. Rubber can lose its elasticity, which is why like fan belts, I'm sure they're made of something better now, but you know, historically people would lose fan belts all the time. That's why everybody has to plug in their cars here still. Um, uh, one of my favorite things is how if you don't have the right tires or if you don't take care of, you know, take the right precautions, um, if you leave your car out, um, the air pressure in your tires can deplete. And it's not because there's any leak. Um, it's because the, the molecule, the air molecules in the tire get sleepy. Um, it's like, you know how your air, air pressure increases if you drive for a long time? particularly in the summer, it's because the interior of the, the tire um, inflates because the air molecules get heated up and therefore expand. Well, if you put a tire in 40 below or 50 below for a long enough period of time, the air, pre the air, air molecules contract and it can look like you have four flat tires. And, um, and if it's a really bad situation, it's possible that you can pull out without realizing it and crack all four tires because the tires have lost their elasticity. Um, at least those are the stories I used to hear all the time. And um, I just think it's kind of wild. And the feeling of 52 below zero is different than you might think. My wife always used to say that the coldest place she'd ever been was actually Chicago. Because that wet wind that comes off the lake and just pierces, you know, your clothing um, kind of attacks you, the cold attacks you. But when it's when the air isn't moving and it's 50 below zero, it's more like you feel your heat leaving your body. And that's in part because the moisture on your skin um, evaporates really quickly. In fact, in the winter, when you come out of the airport, the first sensation that hits you isn't really the cold, it's your nostrils sticking together because they sort of flash dry from the dry, frigid air. Um, and they also get this thing called ice fog, which is not fog in the ordinary sense uh, because it, the, the normal moisture has crystallized and disappeared a long time ago. Ice fog is this weird phenomenon where ice crystals or something form around the particulates in the air, basically the car exhaust and the fireplace soot and that kind of thing. And it kind of hangs low in the air and it kind of smells a little bit like um, 
you're trying to commit suicide by leaving your car running in a closed garage. Uh, it's just, it's really otherworldly. My, um, my wife often refers to it as the surface of the moon. And uh, one last thing on Alaska, and then I'll get off of this. Um, the last time I was here f during winter was during the Occupy Wall Street protests. And um, as you might imagine, I was not a huge sympathizer with the Occupy Wall Street stuff. Um, though, you know, one can always appreciate anyone, the thriftiness of anybody who's willing to recycle their own urine. But um, uh, <laughs> we were up here and we were driving around downtown, you know, 2.30 in the afternoon and it was probably 40 below zero. And the ice fog was really thick in the air. And you know, it, it's kind of like nuclear winter. That's kind of how it kind of feels, the way the sun is kind of blotted out by it. And, um, and the cold hits you like it's radiation in the background. But anyway, we're driving around downtown and um, there were like four Occupy Wall Street protesters out in front of City Hall who were set up in their like uh, yurts um, with their signs all set up. And I just love the idea of like, you know, the masters of the universe at Goldman Sachs or something looking out their windows in Wall Street and seeing the protesters and thinking, oh, we can get through this. And then someone comes in and says, sir, did you hear? There's now an encampment in front of the city hall in Fairbanks, Alaska in the dead of winter. Um, just the idea that like these guys were going to change anything by doing that there. Um, I just think I always thought was kind of hilarious. Um, and it does sort of underscore the kind of um, religious, self-flagellistic, if that's a word, nature of some of this protest culture, um, that you're really, you know, you're sticking it to the man in some cosmic sense by, you know, making these sacrifices in the cold. Um, anyway, I just think it's funny. So um, on Wednesday, I wrote my G-File, and I, I, I know that some listeners don't like me recapping the whole thing. Um, but since it only goes to paid members, I, I figure I should give it a little bit. Um, I wrote about how over last weekend, over Fourth of July weekend, you know, when I was up visiting my mom, um, I wrote a tweet, or I tweeted um, this thing about how the people who are, you know, just dunking on the um, the founding and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the 4th of July um, are basically taking, I think the phrase I used, it's one of my preferred phrases, a sledgehammer to the soapbox that they're standing on. Because these are the same people who cherish their rights of protest, their right to um, free speech, um, the right to petition the government, all of these things, the right to freely assemble. And... Um, and they're showing just zero gratitude to, for where these rights come from. And I was kind of, the, the tweet been kind of viral and I was amazed by the number of people who not just disagreed, but thought I was an idiot for saying this. And there was this, this, and I know that you find that very odd, um, for a story about Twitter conversations, but it was, sometimes it's just amazing how people lean in with their own ignorance and their own sort of smug confidence about 
how they understand the world. And I suppose from time to time, I'm guilty of that too. But this was really kind of shocking to me in that, you know, you know, a bunch of people, dozens and dozens of people were like, oh, you know, um, we're, you know, I'm Canadian and we got all that stuff too. Um, and we didn't even have to fight a war for it. Or, you know, we Brits have that stuff. And, you know, you, um, and, you know, we didn't have slavery and all of these various things. And look, I mean, I get some of the points that they're making, but it is so historically decontextualized. Um, and it doesn't take into account that the American founding has a lot to do with the rights regime in all liberal democracies around the world. Um, and I wrote, I basically used, I, was, I had to get on a plane, so I, um, I gave credit, but I basically cribbed from this great article from uh, Henry, Farrelly, Henry Farley, I think it's pronounced, who was an old Brit journalist who wrote this wonderful piece for the New Republic in the late 80s um, that I remembered um, about the international reaction to the shot heard around the world and how, you know, how the regimes in Europe uh, responded to the, the American uh, Declaration of Independence. And, um, you know, I know I've made, it, I've made this point here before about how um, the, 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 you know, we now live in the post-Gettysburg Address world. We live in a world where we think the most important part of the Declaration was the beginning, the, you know, um, the part that talks about um, we hold these truths to be self-evident that we are all created equal and all of that stuff. And it's good that we consider that the really important part. But as I talk about in the book, um, and, you know, I've mentioned on here, the really important part was the end, where they declared independence. And I think I've sometimes been a little unfair to the first part. You know, I, I often joke that that was basically Thomas Jefferson um, writing on deadline, and it was kind of boilerplate. And that's not quite fair. There's a lot of importance to that first paragraph. And it was seen as important at the time. But one of the reasons why it was seen as important was that, um, and I think it's, gosh, I don't want to get her name wrong, but I think it's Pauline Mayer or maybe Jill Lepore, but I think it's Pauline Mayer. Anyway, there's a historian who, who notes that there were some, something like over 90 different declarations of independence before the one that we've heard of. You know, town councils and, um, uh, you know, various civic groups at the founding era they, era, they would issue their own declarations of independence on the same themes of our Declaration of Independence. These were air, ideas that were in the air at the time. And, you know, what Jefferson did was distill them, partly from his own stuff in Virginia, but also just from stuff that was going around at the time. And... Um, but one of the things I think I'm more unfair about is that it was understood, certainly in Europe, among people who did not welcome the Declaration of Independence and the Revolutionary War, it was understood at the time that there was a linkage between the beginning and the end. That one of the things that we were fighting for, liber that we were fighting for by declaring independence was to create a regime that, that lived according to these these precepts that these these self-evident convictions about the nature of 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 human beings and yes i get into the hypocrisy of slavery stuff and you've heard me talk about that enough and uh, you know i don't want to give it 
I don't want to get deep into that rabbit hole again, but you know my argument about all of that. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, the way that the Declaration was received and the, and the Revolutionary War in general, was the news of it was received in Europe, um, was that this was a profound fight for liberty um, that had huge consequences for the monarchies of Europe who saw the threat to the, the very argument for their power undermined by all of this. And I quote from the Farley article who has quotes from, you know, the Empress of Austria and various newspaper editorials and all of the rest. Um, what I didn't mention, which I was reminded of when I found this blog post I wrote for the corner um, today while I was working on today's G-File, was, um, you know, Lord Acton, you know, the guy who gave us power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, which at least some listeners know, I think is a um, misunderstanding of what he actually meant at the time. And I guess I can explain that again because I'm allowed to repeat myself around here, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, Acton argued that the, um, that the birthday of liberty was 1776, and he meant it quite seriously. Um, he saw it as an application of the best principles of the Scottish Enlightenment and of English philosophy coming out of the Glorious Revolution, um, although he was kind of hard on the Glorious Revolution. Um, he wrote that liberty had been dying in Europe in 1773, um, but that it was riding to the rescue, not from the force of Germany, but from the force of Pennsylvania. Um, and Edmund Burke, uh, who is widely considered, including um, by me, uh, to be sort of the father of modern conservatism, he was always very sympathetic to the American revolution, you know, the American colonists. He did not, obviously, he had mixed feelings about war, but he thought that the, the American colonists had legitimate and righteous grievances and that what they were doing was asserting their um, properly understood English rights and ancient liberties as the founders understood them. And um, uh, anyway, so like, and, and as Farley notes, you know, the, the system of, of constitutional, of a constitutional republic in Denmark um, may not have even been possible were it not for the American Revolution. Um, the American Revolution inspired Brits in England to uh, be more aggressive in asserting their rights um, and for asserting that they lived in a, the very least in a, um, a constitutional democracy or, you know, with a monarch to be sure. But the American Revolution and the fight that they were leading didn't just put America on the path towards a more perfect union um, and didn't just incorporate these British and English customs of liberty and turn them into um, abstract principles that we were essentially locked into, it also did it for all sorts of countries around the world. And, um, and anyway, the thing that really bothered me in the reaction to the tweet was that I, I said that people should be grateful for this stuff. And Adam Gurry, as far as I know, a pretty serious good guy um, who runs this site called Liberal Currents, you know, he challenged me and says, the idea that gratitude um, is necessary for um, ensuring and holding on to your to your rights and your liberties needs to be demonstrated. And, and you know, and part of my response to that is, 
I kind of agree. And that's why I wrote a 500-page book along those lines saying that we should have gratitude for the American founding and that we should have an appreciation for the fact that we are living essentially in an oasis, at sort of a temporal oasis in the jungle of history. For hundreds of thousands of years, we lived in essentially tribal barbarism. And then once, and only once did that start to change about 300 years ago. And a huge driver of that change was the American founding. And if we don't have gratitude for it, when you don't have gratitude for something, the things that seep in are ingratitude, resentment, and taking things for granted. And, you know, part of my argument is, is that um, this is an obvious point um, in almost every other sphere of life. If I had tweeted that we owe no debt of gratitude to Martin Luther King, a lot of the people who dunked on me last weekend would be saying, how dare you say that? Don't you understand what, what, what Martin Luther King did for the, the cause of civil rights for African Americans and for all Americans? You know, of course we owe him a debt of gratitude. And that's why we have a, a holiday named after him. And they'd be right. That's a perfectly legitimate response if I had said that about Martin Luther King. Well, it's also true about the frickin' 4th of July. Because if it weren't for the 4th of July and what it celebrates in terms of the Declaration of Independence, uh, Martin Luther King wouldn't have had an argument for the civil rights movement. Yeah, you know, people are going to remember that the whole thrust of Martin Luther King's argument, particularly in his, you know, March on Washington speech, was to draw on the intellectual ammunition of the American founding and say that we haven't lived up to it. And he, you know, it, it was a tool for him. And that's the great thing about, you know, the, the, the about liberalism generally is that it, it provides something outside of ourselves a, a system and a mean and a, and, a, and a way of thinking about things that um, doesn't just simply depend on who has the most power in a culture or who is the um, anointed victim group. Um, it, you know, it, it, is, it is why I always say there's a big difference between patriotism and nationalism. Because in, in, the, in the patriotic tra American tradition, the hero can be the man or woman who stands up to the crowd or to the government. Um, in the nationalist tradition, the hero tends to be the crowd, right, or the government. And it's just a different orientation about what you think the irreducible unit of your political system is. And in the American political system, rightly understood, the irreducible unit, the sovereign unit, is the individual. And yes, the group comes into it. That's why the Constitution begins, we the people. But the we the people part comes from the individuals forming associations and voting um, on their interests. Uh, and you can then you can get a sense of what the mandate of the people is. But the stuff that we love the most about liberalism and the founding and the Constitution and all that isn't about group rights, it's about individual rights. You know, the, the free speech is about individual rights. Freedom of assembly is about, you know, indiv the, an individual's right to meet with other individuals. Um, freedom of conscience, you know, has that same individual group dynamic, but it boils down to the individual conscience. That's why, you know, uh, Calvin Coolidge, and I don't think he was the first one to say this, but he's who always comes to mind. 
Uh, Calvin Coolidge had the you know line that one with the law on his side is a majority, um, and I don't think that means that you know you have to respect evil laws and whatnot. But if uh, if you are an individual and you have the right to protest, and then a a mob comes and tries to clear you away, you're the one with the law on your side, and that makes you the majority in the in our political tradition. Anyway, so it just I found it very vexing that so many people think it's just this incredibly clever position to claim that we should have no gratitude for what the the founders set up and that we would have it anyway if they never existed, which was the thrust of a lot of the responses, which is just utter garbage um, and makes no sense whatsoever to me. Anyway, oh, on the Acton thing, again, I can't remember if I've talked about this here. I know I've written it a ton. It's in my um, uh, widely underappreciated second book, Tyranny of Clichés. Um, the, Lord Acton was a great guy. And he was on the side of liberty. And um, um, and I don't know if he's got problematic, you know, I don't know if his second uncle twice removed um, owned slaves or any of that kind of stuff. But the things we remember Acton for were good and glorious things. And Acton was um, definitely a, a sort of classical liberal. And so the, that quote that we often hear about, you know, how power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely the way we mean it, he probably believed to one extent or another. But if you actually read where that line comes from, it's from uh, a series of letters for, with a friend of his, I think the guy's name was Crichton, um, who was a historian, and he was writing a history of um, the papacy, of the popes. And um, he was asking Acton how forgiving... Um, historians should be essentially of great men who did bad things in a good cause. I mean, it's a, it's a complicated letter and it's a complicated subject, but that was the gist of it is, you know, how accommodating should we be for the leader who, you know, breaks a few eggs to make an omelet kind of thing. And Acton's response is um, that the, what he's talking about absolute power corrupting He's not talking necessarily about the person who had the power. He's talking about the people who, the intellectuals, essentially, who write about that person or who, who, or who defend that person. That's the corruption that he's talking about. It's that this, this tendency among people to cut powerful people slack and not apply the same rules to them. And, um, you know, it's why generations of communists, including to this day, I just saw this absolutely idiotic tweet thread attacking George Orwell because he was too critical of communists when communists were fighting Nazis or something like that. Um, but, but anyway, that's why there's a, you know, there were generations of useful idiot intellectuals on the left who, if you could persuade them, because sometimes they just wouldn't believe it, that Stalin was doing evil things they would say, well, that's okay, because he's doing it in the name of the greater good. He's doing it in the name of the revolution. He's doing it in the name of, you know, the international class struggle and blah, 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 blah. And all revolutions have victims, but they're the right victims in this case and yada, yada, yada. Um, or you just look at the, all the slavering lickspittles for, for Fidel Castro or even Che Guevara 
um, who make arguments about um, how they can be forgiven for their murders and all of the rest because they were on the right side of history or whatnot. That's the kind of corruption that he was talking about. And I don't want to get into a big, you know, Trump thing here, but that line has come to mind countless times um, when it comes to Trump, where um, any number of people who have been holding up all of these important principles about the importance of good character and about, you know, um, what a, you know, what a, what a, what a, what a president of good character should be like and behave like, all that stuff goes out the window for a lot, for the sort of Jerry Falwell Jr. guys when it comes to Donald Trump, because there's no definition of good character um, that Donald Trump can clear. And I've, I've made this challenge to hundreds of people, and I've never heard anybody, you know, sometimes people will say he loves his children. Um, and let's stipulate that that's true, despite the fact that you hear all sorts of terrible rumors about what he really thinks, at least of some of his sons. Um, and we know some of the gross things he said about his daughter, um, but let's stipulate that that's true. That is a really low bar if you're going to de define um, good character that way. I mean, I'm sure Bill Clinton loved Chelsea. Um, I'm pretty sure that Woodrow Wilson loved his daughter. Um, you know, I mean, I remember David Horowitz um, came after me for saying that Trump was a person of bad character. And some of his, you know, Claim, examples of his good character were hilarious. You know, that he's, um, uh, that he's loyal to a fault was one of them, which I thought was sort of ridiculous. Um, anyway, so that's the point about uh, the, the, the corrupting power of power is that it makes the people who want to be near it um, or it makes the people who want to idealize the cause that the people who have power ha are, are, are associated with, it makes them forgiving of, of foibles in ways that we would not forgive for normal people. Um, anyway, so that's that. I can't remember how I, oh, I guess he got on that because of the acting stuff with, with the declaration. And um, so anyway, uh, for, for new topics, I won't recap the, the podcast I did with John McWhorter, save as a way to introduce something that I wanted to write about today and then ended up just not having time or room for um, you know, my conversation with Warder was really interesting and I wish it could have gone on longer. And, you know, one of the things that we kind of have this, uh, disagreement about is that it's not really a disagreement because I completely concede his, his analytical intellectual point that language changes and it's sort of folly to pretend that it doesn't or shouldn't because it just will anyway. It's like, you know, getting really angry um, at, you know, a river for, uh, raging, you know, river, the river's going to do what the river's going to do. And, um, and so I agree with that, but, you know, he's a defender of double negatives, you know, um, and he says that it's fine to say I could care less, um, even though logically I could care less means the opposite of what the words mean. Um, right, because when you say I could care less, it's supposed to mean I couldn't care less. Um, but people take your meaning and understand it, and only pedants get annoyed by it. And um, you know, he was shocked by my the fact that I want to die on the hill about less versus fewer, and you know, he couldn't care fewer about it. 
Um, but uh, the the thing that we didn't get to talk about that I think is kind of important. Well, two things. First of all, I should just close this out by saying part of my argument about language changing isn't that I want to stop it from changing. Um, it's that I, I kind of want to slow the pace of it. And in, in part, that's because I want, because I think that when words get new meanings really quickly, the work that the word was doing with the old meaning is still required. And um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Here's a good example. Um, uh, during the, in the lead up to the Iraq war, um, the policy of the Bush administration, and I believe the Clinton administration, was for regime change in Iraq. And um, the use of the word regime there wasn't what it came to be misunderstood as. Regime, sort of like the old first things controversy where they asked in the 1990s whether the American political regime was legitimate. Regime had this meaning of system of government, of, of you know, the superstructure of how Leaders um, get power, how they can be removed from power, what they do with power. Um, uh, regime referred to the sort of the constitutional system in America that was set up and how it operated. And um, uh, that's what the first things crowd meant when they were talking about the, whether the American regime was legitimate because they were very angry about Supreme Court jurisprudence on abortion and all that. And that's an old argument now, although, you know, it's coming back in a weird way. And the new, but then very quickly, thanks to a whole bunch of people on the left and then um, a bunch of people on the right, including like Rush Limbaugh, they basically just took the word, the phrase regime change and made it mean administration, right? So like, um, you know, we need, you know, the, the left would would talk about how um, George W. Bush needed to be um, defeated in the 2004 election because we need regime change. And you see people holding up signs saying regime change starts at home and all of this kind of stuff. Now, my point is that that other use of regime actually had served a purpose. And it got co-opted by people who imbued new meaning into it. And um, that's sort of the process that I'm talking about, is that when we are constantly changing words um, and their meaning, it's, it, it's sort of a Chester, as one listener pointed out, it's a Chesterton's fence kind of thing. Um, you know, in the parable of Chesterton's fence, he says, um, you know, the reformer finds a fence in the field, wants to get rid of it, because he, can't under, he doesn't understand why it's there in the first place. And Chesterton says, you know, in effect, um, that's, a bad, that's, bad, that's the bad approach to reform. The wise approach, uh, the conservative approach, would be to first find out why the fence is there before you tear it down. Um, and I, mean, I can tell you, if I open up the hood of a car there are all sorts of wires in there. I don't know what they all do. That is not an argument for me to start yanking the, the ones I think are useless out, right? If, I, if, if, if you're at the hospital 
on a respirator or an IV drip, and I start saying, eh, you know, I can't, you know, every it doesn't seem to, nothing seems to happen when I flip this switch. So, you know, there's no reason for the switch to be flipped, so I'll just flip it to the other position that it was in when I came in. Um, that is not reform, right? That is not wisdom. That's asininity. And, um, and so it's sort of a Chesterton's fence thing when it comes to words is that, you know, there seems to be no concern about whether or not the word or the phrase or the idiom or whatever it is, is performing a useful function right now. And instead, because something is fashionable, it takes on a new meaning and it's not always obvious that there's something to replace it with. And, um, and so, you know, look, we have a big language, so sometimes we can replace things, um, sort of like Indiana Jones replacing the Golden Idol with a bag of sand. The bag of sand isn't as cool as the Golden Idol, and in fact, it ended up not working. Um, and so, you know, you can say, look, literally um, can be used figuratively, and we can, um, uh, and that's fine because it's conveying the meaning that someone wants it to have, and we can derive it from context. But I'm just one of these guys who actually thinks, you know, we need a word, we literally need a word for literally that means literally. And, um, and there's something to be said, at least for the conservative, for sticking up for some of these things. I also just like old, you know, archaic words that have gone away and want to bring them back and I, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, one of the things I didn't talk to Mick Warder about, which I wanted to write about today, was um, the way in which, you know, how to put this. So one of the points I made about how Mick Warder's approach to language is it's very Hayekian that there is a lot of spontaneous order in the same way that institutions and customs and norms emerge to um, serve a purpose. You know, they, they, we may not know what the purpose is per se. You know, uh, um, there are all sorts of things about, you know, there's that, there's that scene in, you know, how to put this, uh, there are a lot of people who want to dismiss kosherism or kashrut, you know, the practice of being kosher for Jews, as simply a public health guideline. Um, and there are arguments for that side of things. Um, you know, you can see in a, in, a culture, in a desert culture without refrigeration why maybe mixing milk and meat you know, might not be a great idea or why you need a hygienic way of slaughtering animals or preparing food. And, you know, there are these kinds of rules all around the world about, about food and, and cleanliness and all these kinds of things. And it's a big part of our brain that, as we know from Jonathan Haidt, has a lot to do with um, some, some of our politics as well. But at the same time, that's not the only argument for being kosher. Um, you know, there are some bugs that are kosher. Um, and there are some things that are unkosher that are perfectly fine to eat. Um, and th there's just, there's more meaning there. There's a covenant to it, but regardless that these two, th these two things live in tandem with each other. And, um, anyway, there, I brought this to mind. I was thinking about that scene in, um, the, what was it? Uh, the, the Raid on Entebbe movie, um, the, the, the good original one with Charles Bronson. And there's a scene where, um, 
one of the hostages that the the actor who played um, I think his name was Sidney Green on MASH and also played a psychiatrist. Basically, it was weird. He basically played the same role in The Odd Couple. Um, but uh, uh, he says, look, Moisha, he's talking to a friend of his who's sick in the, um, in the airport lounge or wherever they are um, while they're being held hostage. And I don't know what his name was, but he says, Moisha, or whatever the guy's name was. He says, look, when I'm home, I'm not kosher. You know, when I'm in Ethiopia, I'm kosher. <laughs> um, because he thinks it's a way to stay healthy, whatever. And so there's all these kind. Of, my other point is, is that in the Hayekian understanding of where culture comes from, there's all of this embedded meaning and knowledge and utility built into customs that we simply inherit. We don't know exactly why they're there. And it's why, as a conservative, you're supposed to have a sort of Chestertonian fence respect for some of these things until you figure out why the tradition exists. Because there are bad traditions that need to go away. It's one of the reasons why we got rid of slavery. Slavery had, was a, had a long tradition of existence, not just in uh, Western civilization, but around the world. And it took time for people to do the moral reasoning required to understand that it needed to go. Um, but there are lots of customs that aren't obviously evil on their face um, uh, that linger around because they have um, a utility to them. And um, that's sort of my objection to just sort of let your freak flag fly and language means whatever you want it to mean and you can use words any way you want to use them. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff built into language, into words, that deserves just a little bit more respect. And that's why I'm a conservative. Conservatives tend to, you know, care more about hitting the brake than the gas pedal when it comes to change. And I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that over time, some of my positions will go by the wayside. Um, but that doesn't mean I was wrong from the beginning. It could be that whether it's with language or with tradition or with custom or whatever, that by slowing the process down a bit, you build consensus, you troubleshoot, you do trial and error that makes what replaces the old, bad old tradition more workable, more moral, more just. When you leap into change for its own sake, you're gonna make a lot of bad decisions. If you have no interest whatsoever with history, with the trial and error of the previous generations that came before you, and you just want to start from scratch, odds are you're going to screw a lot of things up and make a lot of bad decisions. That's why uh, a couple months ago I wrote about um, Tom Wolfe's fantastic essay, The Great Relearning, where he talks about how in um, the summer of love in, in San Francisco, these hippies they basically thought they could start over at year zero and start fresh, and they didn't need to, have, need to have any respect for those bourgeois norms and customs of monogamy or hygiene or a dozen other things. And, and then Tom Wolfe begins his essay by talking about how around that time, doctors in, in and around San Francisco were encountering diseases that no one in living memory had seen before, and they had to consult old medical textbooks, gross thing, you know, the drip, 
the drop, the, the scroff, the scriff, I mean, these weird names for these things. And it turns out that, you know, that stuff that your mom told you about washing your hands before dinner and, you know, and bathing and changing your sheets and all of this kinds of stuff, she may not even have known all of the reasons why this is a good thing, but embedded in them in a Hayekian way was this incredible amount of utility that we have passed on from generation to generation without necessarily explaining all the reasons for it. And as I mentioned to McWhorter, when it comes to cooking, you know, the number of things that are embedded in a cuisine that um, uh, basically everybody who's not a scholar of the history of food really doesn't know or understand um, is based upon generations after generations of trial and error. I mean, just the number of people who poison themselves eating stuff that looked delicious um, or, or eating stuff raw before they realize how to cook it, um, those mistakes had real consequences when they happened, and then the lessons from them just get folded into the instruction manual, the instruction manual of our civilization. And not having any gratitude or respect for that stuff, I'm getting far afield from McWhorter, but screw it, there's no one here to stop me, um, is a dangerous thing. And that's why you should have a healthy respect for the fences that you find in the woods and for the meanings of words and phrases, even if you think there's no consequence in the moment for throwing them over the, overboard. Anyway, the thing I didn't talk to McWhorter about that I wanted to talk to, about, talk to him about more was um, the people who deliberately... So I was talking about all that stuff I just went through. The reason I brought it up is that's one way language changes, right? It's Hayekian, it's natural, it's decentralized. It's where slang comes from. It bubbles up from, from ground level. And sometimes it has, you know, sort of mimetic appeal and people pick up phrases and jokes and all the rest, and it spreads around and it catches on and becomes fashionable. Um, that, there's no office somewhere that issued, um, you know, you know, here's the cool slang for this year. Um, but there are other ways that language changes. And one of the ways that language changes is um, when people very deliberately decide that certain words are now forbidden or that the use of certain words is now considered um, offensive or retrograde. And I get some of that bubbles up from below, to be sure, right? Um, I'm sure there are some intellectuals who argued for a long time about uh, sort of decommissioning the word Negro and replacing it with black. And I remember in the late 80s when, uh, largely led by, uh, by Jesse Jackson, the, we got the push to replace black with African-American. And if you actually listen to McWhorter's podcast, he's got some interesting thoughts on that. He never liked the African-American thing, in part for the entirely admirable reason that as a, as a black man, as a black American, his identity is not all that wrapped up in the customs and norms of Africa. It comes from America. And he's a thoroughly American person. 
and the attempt to make African-American um, a thing uh, bothered him. He didn't, you know, he wasn't outraged by it, but it was, I thought it was an interesting little digression because, you know, um, the, 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 I'm, a, I'm against most of the hyphenated American stuff, not like Woodrow Wilson was, but I think it's sort of a problem. Um, I think that, uh, but it does make sense for immigrants, you know, to a certain degree. If you were born and raised in Mexico and you move here in your 20s, um, whether, and you become a naturalized citizen here, I can understand why you say, look, I'm a Mexican-American because, you know, I'm from Mexico and all the rest. But over time, I think people should just generally consider themselves American. And I have no problem with people being proud of their ethnic heritage. I have no problem with, Af with blacks or African-Americans, whatever you want to call them, um, recognizing their, di their distinctive history in America and wanting to own aspects of black culture the way they do. But as a general proposition, I like in America where people consider themselves Americans. Um, and the African-American thing was a way to, and I don't want to overread what McWhorter was saying, but to make African-Americans more distant rather than more integral to the American experience. But anyway, um, the point is that some of those natural changes to language and stuff, I, I, I'm on board with. It's fine. You should show people respect by using the labels that they apply to themselves. You know, and so even though I have issues with a lot of the ideological stuff, you know, clustered around transgenderism and all of that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm very friendly with Deirdre McCloskey. She used to be Donald McCloskey. I have no problem calling her she and her. Um, because at, at, at the end of the day, it's good manners. And, um, and that's just sort of how I go through life. I completely understand and largely subscribe to, um, opposition to the, you know, to the changing of medical textbooks to define, to, to define away the bio, biological reality of, of what it means to be female in a medical sense. You know, I think that the, 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 the mischief and the, the social engineering involved in a lot of that stuff is, is dangerous and perverse. But on an interpersonal level, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to people the way they want to be referred. And I would never dream of calling uh, a black friend a Negro, except maybe interpersonally as a joke or something. Although I'm way too terrified of, of getting that kind of thing wrong, that I would actually do it unless it was like a really close friend who knew where I was coming from. But, um, you know, that aspect, that, that's an aspect of political correctness I'm okay with, which is this, a way to come up with a language that is inclusive of once marginal groups that make people feel respected. I'm a big believer in the importance of good manners. Um, this is why I often talk about how one of the most impressive things about William F. Buckley was he was just, he was the most well-mannered person I think I ever met. And um, uh, you know, and I, I, when I bring that up, you know, the argument I make is that um, you know, good manners aren't necessarily knowing which fork to use, um, or knowing, you know, that the bowl with the slice of lemon that comes out at really fancy restaurants isn't soup, but it's something to like wash your hands with. Remember that scene in um, Scarface where uh, Tony Montana 
eats the lemon wedge or the orange wedge in the bowl of water um, to prove that he was a boor. Um, good manners are the things that you do to make other people feel respected and welcome. And in that sense, William F. Buckley was one of the most well-mannered people I ever met. When you talk to him, you got his undivided attention. He was your friend. And he was an unbelievably convivial and welcoming host. Um, and you can get into arguments about how he was too welcoming of some people and all that kind of stuff. That's a conversation for another day. But I was blown away by that aspect of William F. Buckley. And, I'm, and I've taken it to heart that I think just good manners are incredibly important, particularly in a democracy as diverse as ours. And so some of the stuff along those lines gets called political correctness, and I got no problem with it. The part about political correctness that I do not like, or the main, one of the main parts of political correctness I do not like, is, or now I guess we're supposed to call it woke culture, is the way people will use language, the way jerks would use good manners. And what I mean by that is, we all know the kind of person who makes someone else feel small for not knowing which, I don't know, which fork to use, right? Or not knowing how to eat some fancy food they've never seen before. Um, we know the kind of, we all know the kind of person who tries to make someone feel small for mispronouncing something or not knowing what a word means. Um, and there's an analog to that in the way the politically correct crowd uses language, where they create, you know, uh, not to get too schmancy here, but, you know, they create a, a gnosis, a gno you know, with silent G, like Gnostic, where they have the secret knowledge. They know the right, the true, the real thing, and they hold it against you that you do not. And they, in fact, weaponize their language to delegitimize you or to ostracize you or to declare you retrograde in some way. Um, communists were great about this kind of stuff. They would constantly change the acceptable vernacular, um, whether it was in the Soviet Union or whether it was at Harvard, um, so as to exclude people. Uh, I once wrote this long piece I still really like. I think it was called Orwell's Orphans. Um, probably wrote it almost... 18 years ago or something like that, um, where I wrote about how bad writing was a new form of, of, of gnosis, right? It was a guild thing where academics, particularly postmodern literary types, like that guy, Homi Baba, I think his name was, they would deliberately make their language impenetrable to the layman as a way of signaling that they had the secret knowledge, that they knew the real truth. And if you couldn't understand what they were saying, if you didn't get, if you didn't understand the shibboleths and the buzzwords and the, the latest codes, um, you were self-identifying as an outsider and, um, and therefore were worthy of contempt. Uh, we've had, I think I mentioned this when I had him on, I've had Vin Canato on my um, podcast a couple of times. It's a very old friend of mine, he's a historian. And I love his story about when he was defending his thesis his P for his PhD, one of the really left-wing professors on the dissertation committee said, um, well, the first thing I want to tell you is this is really just wonderfully written. It's, it's almost journalistic. It's really digestible and understandable. 
and and um, and really, um, you know, easy to read in effect. And Vin told me how that made his heart sink because that was a, a almost a slanderous insult <laughs> among a certain breed of left wing academic who considered clear writing, you know, journalistic writing to be um, for the unwashed and not truly academic and serious. Um, he still got his PhD and he's doing fine and all the rest. But um, I always think about that as, as, a, as an example of this guild mentality. And there's this thing that happens, I know I'm eventually going to get to the point, um, there's this hang, the same similar thing that happens with, um, with, with the sort of politically correct crowd and language, where they deliberately keep changing what the acceptable terms, what the acceptable, you know, what the shibboleth of the day is to um, out and ostracize people. And um, I remember when I was the young trustee on the board of trustees at Goucher College after I graduated, and, um, um, and I was a troublemaker. And so this was late, yeah, it was early 1990s. And um, I... Uh, and the school had decided, because all the other schools were doing it, that they had to come out with um, a mission statement about diversity. And we were all supposed to, you know, chime in about all of it. And they brought in diversity consultants, which was a very interesting thing. And um, because I was a pain in the ass even back then, um, I got on my high horse about how um, I'm fine with a statement about diversity, but let's at least acknowledge that the liberal arts um, have always considered diversity to be part of the mission and that there is nothing um, to be ashamed of about the liberal arts tradition of uh, exploring new ideas, of grappling with conflicting points of view and all the rest, and that there's nothing inherently bigoted about the conception of what the liberal arts are all about. You know, got to remember that the liberal arts, you know, as originally understood, were the things, the subsets of knowledge and the tools of critical thinking that were necessary for well-educated citizens to take their, their citizenship in a democracy seriously. Um, they were the things that you were supposed to know in order to make a healthy contribution to a free society and to perpetuate a free society. And I just thought, I took offense at the idea that issuing a diversity statement would be read as a break with that tradition rather than a furtherance to it. And so I wrote something along those lines, you know, some two-page letter kind of thing. And I remember this uh, very prominent left-wing attorney um, from Washington, D.C. A lot of people on the board were from the sort of large, even though the school was in Baltimore, there were a lot of people from the D.C. area on the board. And she pulled me aside. She said, I really liked your letter. And while I, um, uh, I, you know, I didn't find anything on the page that I really disagreed with, I'm just really worried that, um, 
people will read it as being full of sort of right-wing code words. And the words she had in mind were things like tolerance, free thought, free expression, you know, all of these things that should not be considered right-wing code words, and until fairly recently weren't even considered particularly right-wing. Um, and it was during that debate on the Board of Trustees that I first learned that for, no one called them woke back then, but for the, the burgeoning PC movement, the phrase tolerance was no longer um, acceptable because there was a certain suggestion of condescension in tolerance. The, oh, you're just merely tolerating what we have to say. And we needed to use instead phrases like acceptance or celebration um, because tolerance presumed that, you know, the people doing the tolerating had all the power, like a parent tolerating a kid playing loudly or something like that. And that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about where the PC crowd invents new meanings for words, um, positive or negative, as a way to reinforce the notion that they have a monopoly on what is acceptable language and what, um, what counts as a, uh, a moral um, use of language or an immoral use of language. And um, it's a very, you know, it's a very sort of guild mentality and you see it all over the place once you start looking for it. And, you know, so as I mentioned in the, I think I mentioned this in today's G file, you know, I'm up here in Alaska. And so that's one of the reasons why I know um, that you're not supposed to use the word Eskimo anymore. Um, you're supposed to refer to the specific tribe or people. Um, I'm, I don't think you're supposed to use tribe. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, and um, you're supposed to, uh, or you can say, you know, uh, indigenous or aboriginal or all those kinds of things. And, um, but you're not supposed to say Eskimo because there's some negative connotation to it. Um, in the conversation I had with McBorder, you know, he pointed out that, you know, there's nothing logical or rational about the fact that Chinaman is now considered pejorative because for a long time it was just simply descriptive. And there's lots of things like that. Um, you know, they used to call Muslims, I'm going to butcher the pronunciations, Mohid, you know, well, first of all, they call them Muslimen, but also they call them Mohidinas. There's some bastardization of followers of Muhammad that I can't even get my lips to make the sound, so I'll just pass, but someone knows what I'm talking about. And those phrases become dated, they become associated with certain views that people don't like, and, and so they change, like Negro becomes black, and that's, that's all fine. But there are people in academia and activism who aren't part of some sort of spontaneous or evolutionary process of changing mores. They are aggressively changing language in ways to basically trap and ensnare people um, and, and, and shun them and, um, and a way of sort of illuminating with like a, with a sort of a barium die marker in the society, in the body, body politic, the retrograde forces. And, um, you know, one of the places where I've written about this a bunch, this happens a lot is I hate, ah, man, I despise the phrase, um, we need an open and frank conversation about race in this country. Um, we, we, I've been hearing this my entire life and, um, and I want to be very, very clear. I 
do not have a problem with an open and frank conversation about, say, police brutality, right, um, or uh, the criminal justice system. That is all fine, um, and I would argue even necessary. But the idea that we haven't been having conversations about race for the last 50 years just strikes me as otherworldly. And the, the, but the, my real objection to it is that they don't mean it. When they say, and at least now they're kind of admitting it. But for most of my life, when people said we want an open and frank conversation about race, what they really meant wasn't a conversation. They meant a one-way lecture where one side of the argument gets to say everything that they want to say. And the second you dispute it or disagree with it or just offer quibbles at the margins about it, you are opening yourself up to scorn and ridicule and, um, and sometimes sort of, you know, cancellation. And I remember, um, you know, one example about it was, gosh, there was, there was a, there was a debate a while back about having a, we need an open and frank conversation about, um, about immigration and about, um, the plight of Hispanic Americans or something like that. And Newt Gingrich, you know, who often invites the trouble that he gets into, but he didn't on this time, you know, made a point about the educational, um, you know, problems with bilingual education, that it actually, it, it, it holds kids back from learning English as quickly as they otherwise might, which hurts those kids. It's not good for those kids. I'm all in favor of bilingual education, um, but I'm more in favor of making sure that that the children of immigrants or immigrant children get the best opportunities they can to live fulfilling lives. And I, I'm perfectly fine with the idea that there are trade-offs there and it's complicated, but Newt basically just pointed this stuff out and he was denounced as a racist and a bigot and all this kind of stuff for merely pointing out the facts. And you know, you can see this kind of thing in the, the, the stuff about uh, police brutality. Um, I am convinced that there's a real issue there about the treatment of African-Americans by the criminal justice system. Um, I'm truly appalled about some of the stuff that goes on with bail and debt and the way police forces raise money um, off of the poorest members of their community. I, mean, I think there's you know, ample stuff to, to talk about there. But try in the debate about, you know, uh, about Black Lives Matter and the criminal justice system to point out, um, you know, some of the reasons why the African-American community might actually want more police rather than fewer, um, or about why, um, you know, the, the statistics about, about black deaths at the hands of police, as bad as they appear to be, depending on who you're talking to, um, they don't make the case that the deaths of blacks at the hands of black criminals isn't a problem. And if you try to add some nuance to this stuff or just do some level setting about what the numbers actually say, you're gonna be in a lot of trouble. And for all I know, I'm gonna be in a lot of trouble just even for making this point. But that's sort of my larger point is that when they, when they say we need a frank conversation, they really mean often you should shut up and just nod as we say the stuff that we want to say. And that aspect of um, the changing nature of language really does bother me. 
in the way that people weaponize these, you know, these terms and these phrases and these labels, um, not as a way to promote good manners, not as a way of being inclusive for different members of our society or marginal members of our, I don't want to say marginal members of our society as if they should be marginal. I just mean that they've historically been at the margins of mainstream culture and that's part of the complaint and all the rest. But when you say, um, but when you use language the way a lot of the sort of um, academic and activist left do, um, it's the opposite of why language should be more inclusive. They use it often as a way to exclude other points of view by taking a shortcut of saying, aha, you used, you know, Oriental, and we now know that Oriental is not allowed. You've just admitted that you were retrograde in some way. And um, that aspect of, of, of language policing really isn't about language at all. It's about thought policing. And um, it bothers me a lot. So anyway, I'm done with all of that. Um, I was I just realized I was supposed to do an ad for Scout and Zoe's um, dog treats. I will do the real one um, next week. Um, but uh, I just want to say it's great stuff. We have a new promo code that we'll launch next week for them. Um, and uh, if you haven't been to Scout and Zoe's, go check them out. I believe the old promo code DINGO is still operative. Um, they do great stuff. Um, literally sort of every chain, every every stop on the supply chain is doing wonderful things for um, different parts of, of communities in need of help. And it's also good for the environment and the doggers and the cats love almost all of it. The, the dogs, want, Zoe didn't like one of the, one of the carp things the other day. They liked most of the carp treats, but there was something that she didn't like. Um, Pippa liked it, but they love they love the freeze-dried minnows. They go crazy for the oxtails. They go crazy for the chicken jerky. Um, they got an enormous menu of stuff, and you should check them out. Um, but I apologize. I know I was supposed to do the ad, and I just completely forgot. Um, and, oh, uh, you should check out that thing I referenced last week is is online now where I, you know, they call it a debate. It's not really a debate. It's just a opposing essays about, about whether liberalism has failed or not between me and, and um, Patrick Deneen is up at Newsweek. Um, it'll be in the show notes. And um, I'm not sure how the podcasting is going to work next week because I got some family stuff up here in Alaska and we may not even be near um, usable internet. Um, for some of it. So you just have to stay tuned. And um, other than that, uh, again, thanks for all the support out there. Uh, we're doing great with um, paid memberships, at least as um, we hoped for our, our first year business plan. But, you know, my view is, is that we're we're a good six, seven million people shy of where we should be. Um, and if you could join, that would be great. If you can't, I totally understand. These are financially trying times. But regardless, we really appreciate the support from everybody. And um, I keep feeling like I'm, there's something I should be mentioning, and I keep forgetting it. Um, oh, at some point, i got to explain to people what the different sounds in the 
theme music are. I still get complaints about it. But then when I tell people that that first sound is actually Zoe doing her, her arus, people are like, oh, that's awesome. And um, I'm shocked that people don't instantaneously get references to the Warriors or to Anchorman. And it does make me, you know, weep for our pop cultural fluency out there. But um, um, such as it is. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm clearly fading here from jet lag. So I will see you all next time. And thank you for subscribing. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.